Hi, I'm Davey Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Today, we are going to be delving into a topic that has gained significant attention in recent months, the return to the office. After a period of remote and hybrid work arrangements necessitated by the pandemic, it seems as if the pendulum is swinging back the other way, with numerous organisations re-evaluating their strategies and considering the benefits of bringing employees back to the office. This shift has sparked a renewed conversation around the role of the physical workplace and its impact on productivity, collaboration, serendipity and innovation. With a multitude of factors to consider, from employee preferences to the organisation's goals, finding the right balance becomes essential. Therefore, as HR and people leaders, it's crucial for us to understand the associated implications, challenges and opportunities. To help put some clarity on this complex topic, I'm delighted to welcome Philip Arkell, CEO and founder of Worklytics. Today, Phil and I will be discussing the various aspects of the return to the office, from understanding employee preferences and managing expectations to implementing effective communication strategies and creating a productive and inclusive work environment. We'll explore the challenges faced by organisations in transitioning back to the office, the best practices successful companies have adopted, and the role of analytics and technology in enabling a smooth and data-driven approach. With that, let's kick off the conversation with a brief introduction to Phil himself and Worklytics as an organisation. So I'm Philip Arkel. I am co-founder and CEO of Worklytics. We are a workplace insights platform. We help organizations access and analyze anonymous data on work and collaboration from common collaboration tools. So Office 365, email, calendar, uh, the Google suite of tools, Drive, Slack, Zoom, uh, you you name it. And we're, we're helping organizations leverage that data to improve employee experience, at, uh, drive outcomes in employee uh, satisfaction, engagement, understand the day-to-day life of employees, uh, avoid things like burnout, and understand collaboration patterns as well. We do a lot of uh, organizational network analysis, and uh, I think we'll, we'll talk about some of that today. Yeah, looking forward to it. And, and clearly, as you help organizations wade through all their collaboration data, um, there's so many different platforms that people are using now within organizations to collaborate, isn't it? It used to I mean, back in the day, it just used to be email, but there's so many different tools as you as you highlighted there, though. And I suppose it, it maybe it shows that people are just collaborating more and more intensely than 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 they used to, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think obviously remote work and, and and hybrid in general forced adoption of a, a lot more more tools. I think you know we saw a number of organizations go into the remote work period at the beginning of the pandemic with just email and calendar, and they you know they didn't have. Uh, great chat tools. They didn't have great uh, project management tools, priority lists, share share tools that allow asynchronous collaboration. And you've seen an explosion of adoption in all of those platforms. You know, and in particular, obviously, uh, Zoom. Very heavy usage of of Zoom and things like Teams to to stay connected. Those have been been critical, and I think they've been fantastic. They've allowed teams to continue to get work done even when we're not together. 
So, Phil, last October, we collaborated on an article for, for My HR Future around how the future of work is, is going to be really focused on where work gets done. And since then, we're seeing that, that many companies, notably some of the um, most prominent technology companies in the US, are, are really being a bit more forceful now about mandating return to, to office. You know, obviously, there's there's a lot of research out there and, and more research, um, you know, every week, really, around, you know, the notion of, you know, returning to office being helpful maybe for organizations that are looking for benefit from things like innovation and collaboration um, and maybe onboarding um, perhaps um, new employees as well and getting helping them build their networks within the, within the company. But obviously as CEO of uh, at Worklytics, you know, and someone that's looking at this data um, day in and day out with, with your team, you know, what are your views on this endless debate that we seem to be having? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's you know been a really fantastic uh, period from a from a data uh, people analytics perspective. So much change over the last few years, and we've been working with organizations through you know, pre-pandemic and then the initial move to remote work and all of the permutations. You know, people thought that they could come back to the office, and then the pandemic uh, peaked again, and people were sent back home. And I think a lot of organizations committed to being remote long term and and now you've seen some of them have to go back on that uh, so it's you know it's it's been really interesting from a data perspective to see the major changes in ways of work that all of these configurations cause you know we, we really see points of inflection in uh, in how teams collaborate and communicate each time there's one of these major major shifts in work and we're definitely seeing you're right particularly among tech organizations a push to return to office at the moment uh, and I think a couple of things are driving that 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 change you know that, and and uh, the first is essentially when we when when organizations first moved remote I think a lot of people were surprised by how well it actually worked you know we, we had been in person for you know since forever in most cases and uh, uh, people had formed strong relationships with their teams, with their managers, with the rest of the organization. There were already lots of projects kicked off, initiatives already running, teams already formed. Uh, and so people found, I think, that they could get things done while being at home. Uh, they could still stay connected. They still had those strong, uh, those strong relationships to, to get the information they needed. And they enjoyed the additional focus time. You know, they could, they could kind of hide away and get heads down a little bit more at home. Uh, to, to, to get things done. They enjoy not having the commute, in many cases, a couple of extra hours of work a day. I think what we've seen over time from a data perspective and from, from, from uh, the experience, what we've heard from a lot of leaders in organizations is that over time, as things evolved, new projects kicked off, new team members joined organizations, organizations restructured over time. There've been there's been external pressure from potential economic downturn uh, and a lot of that change has driven changes in the internal networks of organizations. And we see from a data perspective that over the long run, you start to see a bit of a decay in the cohesion of networks inside of organizations. So there's still a lot of collaboration. And you know, you, you pointed out all the tools that people are using to stay communicated, but we see a narrowing of those, uh, of those networks. You spend a lot of time working with your direct team, the people you need to, to, to get things done. But you have less and less time to work with the people outside of that direct uh, that 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 direct network, and I think that gave leaders a sense of potentially a you know decay in culture, decay in strength of the network in the organization. People are less aware 
of what's happening outside of their their teams. I think the second factor that we see uh, as a driver in this as well is for managers, remote work can be particularly challenging. It's very different being a manager or a leader in a remote scenario versus in the office. You can't walk in and glean how people are doing because just sort of passively managed by being there and joining conversations and diving in when you need to. You have to be a lot more proactive. You have to schedule meetings over Zoom and reach out to people and have better tools to coordinate asynchronously. And so it's 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 challenging for leaders to do that on a on a continuous basis. And I think there's a was a bit of a sense of a loss of control from some managers, uh, potentially a bit of inexperience ma- in managers as well, struggling to uh, to keep those connections, to 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 keep those bridges with their teams, and a loss of a bit of a sense of. Uh, cohesion from that perspective as well. So middle management and leaders, I think, have also pushed to re- have a little bit more face time back in the office. So if you're thinking about organizations more and more now t- transitioning to, you know, return to office or spending more time in the office, what are some of the main challenges you're seeing these organizations face when when they're trying to transition their workforces back um, into the office? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that we're working on a lot at the moment. Obviously, a lot of companies in the last six months encouraging people to come back, trying to figure out what the right configuration is. Do they have anchor days? Do they have a minimum number of days that people come back? Broadly speaking, we've seen a, f- a few things from a data perspective. One is we saw collaboration overhead rise quite a bit when organizations went remote. You had to have more recurring meetings, more check-ins to kind of proactively drive communication and connection across across the organization. and counterintuitively, I think you would have expected that when people return to the office, you'd see sort of a dip in collaboration, that it would go back to normal. But Michael Arena, I think, recently pointed out that uh, you know there's a collaboration uh, avalanche, I think he, he he terms it. And we see that from a data perspective as well. And the, the underlying reason for that, we believe, is that when remote work started, people instituted a new way of working. Just from a personal experience, we're on Zoom a lot more. We're connecting a lot more over all these tools all the time, and that is a you know layer of of workflow that is instituted in organizations now. Come return to the office and a little bit more FaceTime. That way of working is still there, but you have all the the serendipitous connection that you get in the office. All of the people that you wouldn't have otherwise connected with when you were remote. Uh, and now you're face to face. You're seeing them at lunch or at the water cooler, and so you get another rise in uh, in collaboration. So I th- we definitely see uh, what you know what Michael Arena reported a lot more collaboration and explosion of collaboration. People I think struggling to find time to do focused individual work outside of outside of that challenge. And then I think the other uh, the other challenge that we see is an issue with in office density. So. What happened in the remote period is a lot of people moved out of big cities uh, into places where the cost of living was lower, for example. They didn't have to be in San Francisco, New York, or London. Uh, and now with return to the office, a, a lot of those people have settled in, settled outside of the cities and they don't want to move back. And so we've, we've looked at that pretty closely. What we see is if you look at people's collaborative networks, who they email, who they meet, who they chat, who they most work with, we're seeing... In many cases, they're only together in the office with 20 to 30% of the people that they actually work with. And, and, and as a result, they're on Zoom all day in the office and, uh, and working with people on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. And I think that causes a bit of uh, frustration when you 
uh, w- when you return to the office in that case. And I think very related to that, there's you know, the ways of work have changed substantially. And one simple example of that is that there just aren't enough meeting rooms anymore. There are just a lot more uh, one or two person Zoom calls where you're chatting to people at somewhere else and offices aren't configured for that. They're open plan. People want to uh, uh, people want to get just you know have their heads down in in, in an open plan space. They don't feel comfortable taking calls, etc. And so we hear a lot of people kind of struggling to find the right space to get things done and preferring to to work at home as a result of that. So those those are major issues. I think a lot of organizations are contending with, and they're seeing in surveys in some cases negative feedback about the return to office program. And I think reducing some of that friction will help resolve, resolve some of that reticence to return. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like there needs to be a bit more intentionality around if you're having an anchor day, for example, it's, okay, well, let's, let's not book five hours of Zoom calls with various members of the team you know, on those days. And maybe another way that it can help organizations is around things like workplace design as well. So you know, looking at the data that, that, that you've got, but then actually bringing their survey data in as well and i think that's where the power of the the kind of that the two different data sources come in so you can actually start to think about how we design our workplaces for the future because you know the way we as you said the way we work has changed and we're probably not going back to the way we work pre-pandemic yeah i i i I think that's right you know as we 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 see you know cases of organizations that are are uh, handling return to office well they're thinking about this density this density challenge, and we've we've seen people use data to implement, a, I think, a bunch of interesting programs to try to uh, deal with some of these challenges. So, for for example, the density challenge that when you come into the office, you're surrounded by the people you actually work with, not people that you don't work with. Uh, we we've seen a few customers design or redesign their floor plans and their their seating plans in the office around people's collaborative networks so that when you come into the office, you're on the same floor, in the same quadrant or space where the people that you most work with are in the office. Um, and so that kind of makes sure that you're getting a lot of value over that time. And we, you know, we actually combined uh, data from uh, sentiment data from, from from surveys around whether people supported these new hybrid ways of working, how they rated them, whether they thought they were working for them. And we found density was absolutely critical in that. If you come into the office and you have 20 to 30% density with your peers, you rate hybrid work as uh, a lot lower. If you have 50% density, then you're far more likely to rate that it's a success, that you are able to connect people with people that you work with when you come into the office and you're getting value for the one hour commute that you have to, or the two hour commute that you have to add. And then I think you're right, space design, key component of that as well. We're seeing a lot of organizations use this data to reconfigure spaces, reconfigure how they use open plan spaces, put in a lot more phone booths, one or two person uh, call rooms that allow, you know, somebody to uh, either focus and, 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 and find a quiet space to get work done or to be on those Zoom calls with, with more distributed teams across the organization. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting employee privacy using Worklytics data stream. Worklytics combines passive listening with organizational network analysis 
to help you understand how work is getting done, so you can identify bottlenecks, improve collaboration, and increase employee engagement. Curious to see how it works? Worklytics is offering a free meeting effectiveness analysis to the first 10 qualified companies who express interest. Tell them I sent you by going to worklytics.co forward slash digital HR leaders. That's W-O-R-K-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot co forward slash digital HR leaders. How can organizations go about understanding their network density and, and what are some of the data points that they should look at and how do they differ when you're looking at network density within a team, but maybe between teams as well that maybe need to collaborate uh, and innovate together? Yeah, yeah, good question. This is something we, we spend a lot of time on and we, we deliver data sets for organizational network analysis that uh, and, and work with customers to analyze this data. And, and I think the, the, the metrics that matter differ by the question you're trying to answer, the, the particular problem you're trying to solve. But broadly speaking, we look at people's close or strong networks, who, who, who are the teams, uh, parts of the organization that you spend the most time with, and what is the size of that network? Is it too large such that you might struggle from over collaboration or keeping in touch with that many people? Is it too small such that you might be isolated? We see a lot of uh, isolated isolation like that in, in more remote organizations. And then we look at weaker connections. You know, what are your connections across the broader organization? Do you have visibility into what other teams are doing? Uh, potential for cross-pollination of ideas in other departments. Uh, and and I, I think key to that is bridging connections, you know, not just connections within your team or your department or your role, but you know, what do they look like between your team and other teams, between your department and other parts of the organization. Um, and then we might look at it from a uh, a seniority or, or, or leadership perspective as well. Do you have connections with your manager, with your skip level manager, with leadership uh, you know, and those are strong predictors of retention, uh, of high engagement, and of career uh, mobility as well. Of, of, of probability that you're you're promoted if you do have those strong networks and you are able to uh, maintain and build them uh, build them over time. I, I think one example is, for instance, we have looked at sales teams and what drives performance on sales teams, shortening sales cycles or uh, increased target completion, and there we found that uh, people's very close, intimate networks really matter. Uh, and uh, for example, we'll, we've looked at networks in uh, Slack direct messages or Teams direct messages. Who are the people that you have one-to-one -one conversations with? And if, if people in, uh, in, in sales positions have direct connections with marketing, with product, with customer success, people that they can reach out to to better understand customer problems, solutions that they can leverage and bring into customer calls, those connections are really critical and, and strong predictors of success in, in sales. So this, it's, a, it's an incredibly rich space and you know, uh, I think interest in this space has blown up over the last two to three years in particular, and it's been fascinating to see. Yeah, and, and I guess at this point, we might want to talk about some of the pri privacy elements of this because number one, we're not look you're not looking at content, you're just looking at who connects with who, how often, and who are the bridging connections maybe between different teams because they could be vital to, to getting work done. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit to the kind of privacy and how you how the data surface with, with, with people in the organization. 
Yeah, good good question. You know, I think a lot of people that's the first thing they think about uh, before they 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 venture into this into this space. It's clear that there's a lot of value in this data. We've, we're seeing an explosion in the use of it, particularly over the last few years when there's been so much change, really helping a wide variety of organizations understand how they function, improve employee experience, improve how they work and get uh, and get things done. But at the same time, there is fear uh, um, among employees that this data will be used for nefarious purposes to, you know, to monitor people uh, or to... Uh, count the number of emails they send and use that as a weak proxy for for productivity and 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 I think in in some cases that that is founded it's you know, r- ridiculous that that uh, uh, those types of use cases would be considered but I I don't think that that uh, that necessarily means you need to throw out the baby with the bathwater I think you could have both of those things you can you could gain the value from this data while still protecting employee privacy and ensuring that you have employee trust and so. We implement a technology layer, a proxy that sits on customer infrastructure and filters out all PII, all identifiers, or any any personally identifiable information before it comes through to Worklytics for analysis. We also filter out all content. So we're only interested in flow of information in organizations, uh, not the body of any uh, of any content whatsoever, and that is filtered out at, at, at the source as well. Then, then the data is aggregated up to the group or department level, and so you're looking at broad trends across large groups of people inside of these organizations. And so then I think by doing that, you can balance getting value from this data while uh, still maintaining trust protecting employee protecting employee privacy and that's absolutely critical. I think another thing that that's critical is ensuring that employees see value from the analysis of this data. We've seen a lot of successes in uh, when organizations present these insights back to 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 their teams, to the organization. There's appetite for understanding how ways of work and connection and networks impact work in organizations. Uh, I think right now there's an opportunity for a win-win. A lot of employees want the additional flexibility from hybrid uh, and and remote work. Uh, but there's this fear around, are things still getting done in leadership? Is there still connection, et cetera? And I think if uh, uh, if we can use this data, I think it's the, the, the perfect data set with which to understand that problem, that we can allow more flexibility and, and, and things can still work. We can maintain those connections if we implement the right strategies. To do so, you know, if you can deliver that and use the data to do so, it's really a win-win for both employees and for organizations. What are some of the other social capital metrics or, or, or network metrics that you would recommend analyzing to, to measure success of return to work efforts or, or maybe success of, of, of overall approaches to hybrid? Yeah, again, I I think it depends on the problem, and you you know you're right on those pre those previous your your previous point around trying to identify win-win problems that you can focus on with this data. That's where we see these projects be most be, be most successful. I think one of the areas where we've we've seen a lot of traction is in uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And use of this data is one of the strongest use cases for it, and it's been a particular challenge for underrepresented groups during the pandemic for 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 a few uh reasons in particular it's harder it tends to be harder to build your networks in organizations and so if you're if you're doing hiring in this space you're bringing in people from diverse backgrounds do they have the opportunity to build those networks in their 
uh, in their teams, in the broader organization, with uh, with leaders, uh, and you know, and those networks are critical for uh, allowing you to succeed in the organization, for retention, for promotability, uh, and, and really driving value uh, in those organizations. So I think there's a there's been you know, a really strong use case around using this data to understand the potential for that broadly across your organization, identify hidden uh, hidden bias in the organization. Uh, it's one of the most exciting applications of, of ONA data. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. So, I mean, the interesting field, I speak to, you know, a lot of what, as you do, speak to a lot of different organizations and occasionally some will say to me, we want to do ONA, what use cases should we use it for? Which is definitely not the right question. It should be, I've got this problem I'm trying to solve. And then we think that the network data or collaboration data can help us with it. What what advice would you give to a, a people analytics leader or an HR leader that's looking to use this and how should they start? Yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on. And I was listening to a, a recent interview with Rob Cross, where he, you know, he, he, he was asked a similar, a, a, a similar question. And there, you're, you're right that uh, ONA sometimes is the shiny new thing. Uh, we've all seen those network diagrams that really look exciting and, 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 and fantastic. Uh, and so we do from time to time get people who approach us and they say they want to do ONA and they're trying to figure out uh, what problem to apply ONA to? You know, first of all, we'll, we'll say that you know those diagrams. Well, they look good. Uh, inferring anything from them is really like reading tea leaves. You need to kind of really dive into the data to understand what what's going on. And the diagrams maybe help sell the project internally, but uh, they're they're certainly not the focus of 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 what ONA should be. And then I think you know you kind of alluded to it. What is critical is starting with a problem, starting with something that you want to solve in your organization, whether that is leadership development, uh, understanding managers' uh, spans of control and layers, understanding your latest survey results and what the underlying drivers are because you're seeing higher burnout and higher attrition. Those are kind of core problems that are very important to organizations right now. And there are a number of ways in which ONA and network data can help solve those problems. So figure out what your top one, two, or three priorities are, and we always redirect people to do that. What is critical to uh, your executive team, to your C-suite in your organization? What are the top priorities in your organization from a people perspective? And how can ONA help drive those priorities rather than you know coming at the problem from 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 the reverse? And when you do that, I think you know you're, you're applying it to a key problem that everybody cares about. They see. Uh, they see the value of uh, a lot more visibility into understanding that problem 
uh, and, and being able to create new and better metrics around it. And you know, those are the projects that are the greatest successes in this space. And you know, unfortunately, in some cases, there have been a few too many of those cases where people start with O and A and try to kind of retroactively retroactively fit that to a problem. But as the space matures, we're seeing you know more and more people taking on these projects in the right way and starting with a starting with a real problem. How do you foresee the practice of organizational network analysis evolving over the next five years? You know, and maybe if there's a balance between you know active and passive O and A as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I think the the space is still pretty young, as you know, but you know we've seen it mature a lot in the last few years because there've been just so many applications to it over all of the changes that that that, that have occurred in organizations. What we're starting to see is uh, this type of data, these these metrics, things like focus time, things like how much time is my organization spending in meetings, what are the productive meetings versus less productive meetings? What what does network size look like? Are we siloed and isolated? We're seeing those metrics being bubbled up to the executive level and being reported to the C-suite on a regular basis in quarterly business reviews or monthly business reviews, along with other HR data on uh, hiring and promotions, et cetera. So it's becoming part of a, a core toolkit and KPIs that the organization uses on a continuous basis to understand where things are, where there are potential uh, challenges that need to be focused on th throughout the org. So I think it will continue to rise in importance. We've started to see that uh, and we're seeing a lot more of that over time. And, and I think over the next five years, you're going to see a, a lot more maturity. And then secondly, related to that, I think is getting insights out further and further down to the individual contributor level in an organization. Right now, ONA is driving value at the HR level, maybe at the HRBP, maybe some senior leaders, but you're going to see it over time drive value at the manager level and ultimately at the individual contributor level. How can you understand your networks and the impact that those have uh, on your potential success? How should you develop them over time to, to, to get things done in an organization? Uh, and so that will be an interesting trend to to monitor over the next five to ten years. And Phil, you know, maybe a bit early to say, but you know, are there any specific applications of of generative AI that you see in the realm of, of of collaboration and workforce productivity, or any that you could foresee in the in the in the near future? Yeah, obviously, it's still a very nascent space, but incredibly exciting. I think a, a bit of hype right now. We're 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 you know at the peak of the hype cycle, maybe starting to trend. Uh, starting to trend down, but I, I I do think you know to the previous point I made, you're going to see this value being delivered all the way to the all the way down to the inter individual contributor level. How do you combine all of these different data sets together? Your active listening, your passive listening, what you have in your uh, in your HRIS system, all of the other all of these other data sets into a recommendation that you can make to somebody that provides value to what they're doing, helps them do a better job, helps them focus more and get things done. I think combining these data sets together and generating recommendations on the fly that feel very relevant to your particular context as an individual, they understand where you are in the company, what your work life looks like, what your day-to-day -day li life is like. It could be kind of very focused in on, on your problems and your challenges and, and so very relevant uh, in, in, in making, making suggestions. We're 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 not there yet, but I I think that's where things will evolve, and and uh, we're you know we're looking forward to that day. And 
And this is the question we're asking everyone on on this series, Phil. You know, what steps can can HR leaders take within their organisation to humanise the work experience? And by all means, talk about it from the perspective of of of, of the sort of data sets that you're helping organisations understand better. Yeah, good 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 question. I I think to my previous point, what can be dehumanising is applying blanket policy changes or blanket structural changes, treating employees all as a single amalgamous mass that that you know all have the same needs, the same ways of working, the same day-to-day context of what they do. And uh, network data and technologies like AI and and uh, better data sources from, from, from other places as well combined together help you layer in the context of every unique individual, the value that they provide, uh, uh, what their context is in the organization, and, and the context around them, their broader team, et cetera, so that you can provide solutions and recommendations and policy changes that are better suited to the needs of each individual. And I think if the more we can use data to do that, um, and the less we use you know, single blanket uh, uh, models for what people want or what people need, the, the more we uh, are, are able to humanize and add value to, to, to individuals. Well, I can't believe conversations already come to an end field thank you so much for for being a guest on the digital hr leaders podcast can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you on social media and also find out more about the work you're doing at work this is because i know you share you know a lot of the a lot of the data that you're collecting from an aggregate level with some of the insights um you know certainly something i've been interested you know throughout the, the various stages of the pandemic i think has really helped track some of the the, the big trends during that during that during those few years yeah, yeah. Thank you, David. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, so, if if, we, if people want to find out more, we do share a lot on LinkedIn. You can follow our our newsletter. We share out a monthly newsletter with the latest insights that we found or techniques uh, in O and A or, or or workplace analytics. Um, so so definitely check that out. Uh, you can visit our website as well, workletics.co. Um, we are as part of this series as well, offering a, uh, a free meeting effectiveness analysis. So we plug into uh, companies' uh, calendars and we anon- anonymously analyze meeting patterns across the organization to identify bottlenecks, identify where potentially parts of the organization are excessively uh, meaning have, have a lot of overhead, make active recommendations. Uh, so if you're interested in that, we uh, uh, recommend that you you take advantage. The first 10 companies, as I said, we're, we're offering that for, for for free to to try out what, what that looks like. Brilliant. Well, we'll make sure that we get the details of that. I know um, there is a dedicated link, I think, for, from the podcast, which actually takes people to that landing page so they can find out more about that, that offer there. So, uh, Phil, it's always a pleasure. No doubt we'll bump into each other at a, uh, a a conference at some point in the near future, I suspect. But yeah, thank you very much again for being a, a guest on the show. Yeah, thank you, David. It's a, an honor and a real pleasure and look forward to seeing you in person soon as well. And that brings us to the end of another captivating episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week with another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Take care and stay well.